0: KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Art Power is presenting Indian fusion band Red Barat. Mixing Indian bhangra rhythms, hip-hop, and funk music. March 23rd at the Epstein Family Amphitheater. Tickets and information about upcoming concerts and events at artpower.ucsd.edu.
1: Mexican immigration officials say a new policy will speed up border traffic.
2: Mexico does have a really vested interest in, in getting people through quickly. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with
1: Jade Hindman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. San Diego considers banning the sale and use of styrofoam.
3: It would affect restaurants that everyone already knows about, but also a lot of retail stores.
1: What happens when science gets involved in museum design? And a review of a gender-bending production of As You Like It at La Jolla Playhouse. That's ahead on Midday Edition. In what's being called a binational collaboration exercise, Mexican immigration officers will now be screening northbound traffic at the San Ysidro port of entry. Mexico says it's an effort to help speed up border traffic. It's hoped the Mexican officials will stop travelers who don't have valid entry documents from progressing toward the U.S. border. But checking documents has long been the job of American border agents. Immigration advocates are concerned the move is aimed at stopping asylum seekers from making their claims at the border. Joining me is Kate Morrissey, who reports on immigration for the San Diego Union-Tribune. And Kate, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me back. This program is set to begin tomorrow. How will Mexican immigration authorities become part of the border screening process?
2: The plan, as far as, as we understand it, and, and so far we've we've gotten this information from a number of Mexican officials. U.S. officials have been pretty quiet um, about what's going on. But our, our understanding is that Mexico is going to set up um, immigration officials at checkpoints about roughly a hundred yards from the actual border line. So if you're familiar with the San Isidro port of entry right at the border line itself, there's a big yellow line on the ground in the car area. There's like little raised bumps on that yellow line so you can physically see where the border is. So they'll be about a hundred yards into Mexico from that checking documents in both the Sentry lanes and the ready lanes so the century is the is the trusted travelers program for people who uh, want to be able to cross more quickly they go through a pretty rigorous uh, background check to be able to do that um, and then the ready lane is for people who have the more sophisticated travel documents um, so it's not clear what if anything is going to be happening in the general lane But now, tomorrow, it's likely that travelers in the sentry and the ready lanes will pass through this checkpoint with Mexican immigration officials. Then when they reach that yellow line, there will probably still be U.S. officials doing an initial document check before you get to the the booths, which is where the actual immigration revision to enter the United States officially happens, where they see who you are and whether you can enter or whether they're going to send you for further inspection.
1: So in theory, what will this allow American border agents to do that they can't do now?
2: What Mexico is hoping is that by stationing their immigration officers close to the border and and screening out people who don't have um, entry documents for the United States, that those those US officials who are currently stationed right at the yellow line will be able to instead open more booths to process more lanes at a time through the port of entry.
1: And does US Customs and Border Protection agree that they'll free up agents for that work?
2: They have not said anything publicly about what their plans are related to this. Thus far, we're still hoping that they might Um, provide some more information today or tomorrow.
1: Now, the Mexican immigration officials checking for documents will be accompanied by security forces. Will they take people into custody?
2: It is definitely possible. Uh, I think most likely people would end up in Mexican immigration custody if they're going to end up in custody. So if someone is trying to enter the United States who doesn't have entry documents for the United States, Mexico is going to be checking if that person has status or or permission to be in Mexico. Um, So they could very well end up at some kind of Mexican immigration station.
1: Why are immigration advocates worried about this change?
2: So the reason why we now see um, U.S. officers at the yellow line, at the physical borderline, what they often call the limit line, That actually hasn't been going on for that long. It's been maybe a year and a half that we've seen them uh, stationed there. And that was in response to asylum seekers who were driving through the car lanes to try to reach U.S. soil and request protection, because the U.S. asylum system is based on this idea that you must reach U.S. soil. And once you are there, you can say, I am afraid to go to my home country. I qualify as a refugee and then the U.S. does a screening to see if that's true and so with a lot of recent border policies the access to that system has been incredibly restricted uh, particularly since the pandemic it's um, pretty much impossible to walk up to the port of entry and make an asylum claim and so one of the alternatives that asylum seekers found that wasn't quite as didn't feel quite as risky as, for example, climbing the wall or or climbing through a desert mountain region um, was to drive cars through. Um, and so when they did that and they reached U.S. soil, um, they were sort of forcing that process to begin and also often slowing down the line when they did so.
1: Are authorities convinced that this intervention by Mexican authorities is legal in terms of U.S. asylum law?
2: That is a good question. And in terms of what is required by the United States, there's a a longstanding lawsuit about the act of turning away asylum seekers who are in the process of arriving on U.S. soil. So someone who's like walking up or driving up to the borderline to request protection and the most recent ruling that we have in that case from from a federal judge is saying that the U.S. government cannot turn asylum seekers away when they're in the process of arriving at U.S. soil to request protection, that that goes against the U.S.'s obligation under its own laws, as well as under um, international treaties. And so now that the U.S. is asking Mexico to do some of that work for it, it's bringing Mexico into that already sort of questionable legal situation. And when I spoke with a, with an attorney who's actually a Mexican attorney um, familiar with, you know, so more familiar with the particular laws and and, and constructions in, in Mexico, uh, she's also very concerned about Mexico getting involved in this and thinks that will likely open the country up to its own lawsuit over this issue
1: now a mexican official has made the claim that this new policy is in mexico's best interests
2: how well when you think about border crossings and particularly the san isidro port of entry there is a lot of cross border traffic that that helps the economy on on both sides of the border people are able to visit family people are able to go shopping people are able to do to go to work um and there's been a lot of of studies over the years looking at well like in the moment when when the border was closed how much money was lost in the in the shared cross-border economy um or even when you look at you know how much traffic backs up into Tijuana because of the wait times like there's there's a lot at stake when it comes to moving travelers through efficiently at this port of entry it's it's the busiest port of entry in the hemisphere and and some years the world, depending on the statistics that you look at. And so Mexico does have a really vested interest in in getting people through quickly so that it can facilitate that economy, so that it can keep traffic in Tijuana from getting so crazy, um, so people can get to work, all of those things.
1: I've been speaking with Kate Morrissey. She reports on immigration for the San Diego Union-Tribune. And Kate, Thanks a
2: lot. Thank you.
4: San Diego could soon be saying farewell to Styrofoam as the city council is set to hear a proposal tomorrow that would ban the sale and usage of the product within the city. The proposal, long delayed by litigation from restaurant groups and container companies, has already received a unanimous vote in favor of the ban by the city's Environment Committee. Joining me now with more is San Diego Union Tribune reporter David Garrick. David, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, What would be the scope of this ban if the proposal goes through? I think it's pretty wide scope. It it wouldn't just apply to what
3: we picture as like styrofoam food containers at restaurants, but it would apply to egg cartons and coolers made out of foam and ice chests and pool toys and dock floats and, and lots of other things. So it would affect restaurants that everyone already knows about, but also a lot of retail stores.
4: When will the ban take effect? Not until April 1st. And if you're a business
3: that has a a low number of employees or you have $500,000 or less in gross sales, you'd actually have even longer to comply with it. The city has sort of a, a grace period for
4: businesses that can claim hardship. And to be clear, it's not just a ban on the sale of these kinds of products, but also the use of them as well. I mean, how would that work with existing products?
3: Uh, you know that's a good question um I think if if you have one that you've already bought in in advance, you're still able to use it, but uh that's something I think the city has to has to spell out a little more clearly i agree
4: and can you remind us of why styrofoam is so harmful to the environment in the first place? Yeah, well, it breaks down into smaller pieces
3: um and it gets uh into the beaches and and uh, wildlife eat it especially fish, and then we as humans eat it, and that's a carcinogen. Um, so it's killing you know, wildlife along the beaches, and then eventually it's damaging human health.
4: To that point, environmental groups seem to be unanimously in support of this ban. What are they saying? Yeah, they've been
3: lobbying for this for a long time. There's about 130 cities in California that have done it, but San Diego is the largest. Los Angeles is talking about it, but they haven't quite done it yet. Um, You know, and and the environmental, uh, I guess, coalition has sort of led this charge for a long time. Uh, And locally, uh, Carlsbad, Encinitas, Solana Beach, Del Mar and Imperial Beach have already banned it. And it's not a coincidence. Those are all coastal cities because that's sort of the areas where it gets the most attention because of the impact on fish and and sea wildlife.
4: Right. And conversely, local restaurant groups not so thrilled about the prospect of Styrofoam going away. Uh, What would this ban mean for local businesses? Well, I think it's a key distinction to make is that national chains like you know
3: Panera they they switched away from foam years and years ago because of national public pressure. It really affects the smaller businesses, the sort of one-off taco shop or pizza place or you know takeout joint uh, that you know still serves uh, the foam containers because they cost a little less money. Um, You know, and they're trying to save money here and there because they don't have deep pockets like a national chain. So unfortunately, it's the national chain who can most afford to deal with this already have dealt with it. And it's going to fall on the little guys. And I think that's why the city has these hardship exemptions, because they understand that a lot of these little taco shops are making, barely making ends meet, barely staying in business. And so to add a new expense onto what they're already facing would be, you know, a hardship.
4: And this proposal was wrapped up in litigation for years. Uh, Why is
3: that? Well, it's interesting that San Diego, there were like 120 cities that did it before San Diego, but the restaurant association and then a container company, um, basically they they make the foam containers. They decided to use San Diego as an example. They said, we're going to stop this one. San Diego is the biggest city that's done this. We're going to sue San Diego. Uh, And basically they were just trying to stall, I guess, because I think they knew that their suit probably wouldn't be successful, but they forced San Diego to do a comprehensive environmental analysis of the ban to make sure that it wasn't causing any extra, you know, environmental impact. And a lot of people thought that was kind of ironic, but their argument was that for, for the companies, for the restaurants to get the paper products, the trucks would have to travel farther and the paper products way more. Uh, it was kind of a convoluted argument, but th- that they ended up completing the analysis and, and determining that there wasn't an impact.
4: Wow. What a stretch there. And uh, as you mentioned, you know, groups had argued that a study needed to be conducted to see how bad styrofoam really is for the environment. Um, what were the findings of that study?
3: Yeah, that just doesn't biodegrade, I think is the biggest thing, right? I mean, it's just it, it just shrinks into smaller pieces. So it just lasts forever. Um, you know, and, and interestingly, the, the state has actually passed a sort of, a, 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 I guess you call, it's not a ban, but uh, because the foam industry says that they can recycle it and reduce uh, the amount of it that appears in landfills. There's a state law that would ban it that basically in 2025 it would be completely banned if they if those sort of arguments about reduced amounts of foam and landfill don't come true. Sort of calling the industry's bluff.
4: Uh, local lawmakers have proposed some suggested amendments to this ban. What can you tell us about that?
3: Well, uh, Dr. Jennifer Campbell had suggested that maybe boogie boards should be banned. The ban does not, I want to make it clear, does not, uh, the new foam law does not ban those. But she said that even though they're sealed, and that's the city's reasoning for not banning them, a lot of times the seal breaks and the foam does get out and does end up in the mouths of fish and and sea life. Uh, I don't know whether the city will add that. It seemed like there wasn't a lot of uh, enthusiasm about it, but Dr. Campbell uh, did propose that. Uh, And Marnie von Wilpert proposed that the city banned uh, the use of plastic straws completely. The foam ban does address plastic straws and uh, utensils, uh, basically saying that you can that the restaurants can no longer hand them out unless the customer requests them, which would be a significant change in San Diego because now they just hand you the straw; they don't even care if you want it. So, and under the new law, you will have to actually request it. But Tom Wilpert wants to go even beyond that and say no plastic straws, even if people request them.
4: I've been speaking with San Diego Union-Tribune reporter David Garrick. David, thank you for joining us.
3: Thanks for having me.
0: KPBS On Demand
4: You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Kavanaugh. Ever since museums have existed, directors have tried to imagine the best way to arrange and illuminate the objects on display. But now art museums are getting some help from science. KPBS SciTech reporter Thomas Fudge has this story about an experiment that tries to determine what museum goers really want to see.
5: A video taken at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art shows museum visitors at a pottery exhibit. They approach a display case, circle it, and stand for a short time looking at it before moving on. The video is one small piece of visual data the Salk Institute will examine to find out how people interact with art objects. Professor Tom Albright, a neuroscientist at Salk, says the people in the videos are converted by a computer to stick figures to analyze their movements like pointing, or standing in front of an object for some extended period of time, or turning and talking to a friend who came into the museum with them. And we can then look at the frequency of all those events, when they occur, when somebody moves through the gallery, what's the path that somebody takes as they move through the gallery. Cameras are installed near the top of the 20-foot walls that surround the pottery exhibit to capture the movement of the visitors. Albright says this experiment, funded by the National Science Foundation, has two goals. One is focusing on creating a good museum exhibit. How can we optimize the placement of objects in the gallery to facilitate learning on the part of the visitors? Then there's the scientific part. The second goal is is to understand how people behave how visual information and access to to the motor access to the space affects the choices they make the sauk institute is partnering with the la county museum of art where people's behavior in a gallery is being examined victoria boehner is director of exhibition design at lacma she says for all the anecdotes they've heard and observational studies they've done she thinks this study will provide better information about how to engage museum visitors.
2: This study will provide us
6: with some really great data that um, we can then use towards future decision making and then when we go well we know that this is what happens but we want to do something else anyway then at least we know what we're doing.
7: And as we move around it the work really changes.
5: In La Jolla at the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego senior curator Jill Dawsey shows me an eight foot tall sculpture made from resin.
7: You know when you're standing straight on it has rounded corners and yet as you move around you see the sides have sharp edges.
5: This sculpture is clearly the star of the exhibit. As you enter the gallery, it's the first thing you see. It's translucent and changes color as you move around it and as the gallery's natural light fades or brightens. Doss, he says just putting two artworks in the same space makes a statement about the story you want to tell.
7: And so we think carefully about how we are creating meaning. We think about the pacing of art objects, how much space goes between them. We think about sight lines and how we are going to, um, you know, stage an artwork to pull a visitor forward into a room.
5: And she says you've got to put a sculpture in a place where a visitor isn't going to back into it when they're looking at a painting on the wall. Dawson looks forward to the findings of the Sauk Institute study.
7: I think it would be Fascinating to see what they learn, because in my experience, visitors, you know, navigate the museum in their own idiosyncratic ways. But it would be helpful to know, um, you know, the pace at which people are moving through the galleries and how often um, artworks really do serve as conversation pieces.
5: The Salk Institute's Tom Albright says scientists will manipulate the exhibit at the L.A. County Museum of Art to see how that affects visitor behavior. Descriptive text alongside the artwork will be shortened or expanded. The location of artworks will be moved around. The exhibit is called Conversing in Clay, Ceramics from the LACMA Collection. It will be open until May 23rd of next year. Thomas Fudge, KPBS News.
4: A maximum security prison might not be the first place you think of to celebrate a wedding, but it's where Edmund Richardson is marrying the love of his life, Avelina. In this excerpt from the podcast Uncuffed, host Greg Eskridge and Ton Tran speak to Richardson the day before the wedding about masculinity, vulnerability, and the prospect of love while incarcerated.
8: I really want tomorrow to go to go perfect I think I'm more nervous meeting her mom for the first time
9: wow uh, mama
10: Meet so those first. those
8: first impressions is everything and I know I'm gonna do well in reading the vows the like the whole ceremony but it's like what's that first conversation gonna be like with her mom is she gonna like me
10: what so, you think so what, what so what what part do you feel insecure about for lack of a better word like what do you think the mom might not like about you
8: I mean the fact that I'm in prison mm. <laughs> that's the truth and her daughter chose me out of every man in the world to marry
10: wow wow
8: I can only imagine what a mother th- mother is going through right now you know what I'm saying like hey mom I'm about to get married probably excited like to who
9: this guy that's in prison. <laughs> um. <laughs> hey, hey, it's funny, but that's that's literally what it is, bro. It it's, is is I'm not about to go marry a, a doctor or mm. a lawyer or this pillar of the community. I'm marrying someone who committed a crime and who is incarcerated. Wow. Not only incarcerated, but serving a long time
10: right a life sentence a
9: life sentence man
10: wow so Evan so I have a question I have a question go ahead man it's the day before your wedding what are you doing to prepare for this wedding
9: hey yeah but Evan looks
8: sharp man so I'm I'm waiting so I got my clothes ironed I'm so prepared Mm. like I'm so prepared I'm so ready for this moment there's just one last thing that I have to do, and that's something that you suggested to me yesterday, was adding a paragraph just about who she is and what she means to me and the impact that
10: she's had on my life. In your vows. In my vows. Absolutely. I've been seeing you been practicing your vows for like more than a week now, and is bananas to me just watching you like this i just been seeing you Just head down Focus Typing Retyping And finally yesterday I'm like bro You've been working on this thing For like a week bro Let me let me, let me, me get a bar Of these vows man Right 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 right. <laughs> let me get a bar Of this thing man Like you seem so intense yeah. I said man I gotta get a sample man I don't care if I'm the best man I'm here today, day of And then you read it for me And I swear to God I teared up bro I felt like I was getting married I felt like you was going to try to propose to me or something. I was like, man, this is too good, man. This is fire. And it's crazy. Just being incarcerated and having this big moment, like all the things you do to prepare and all the things you can't do to prepare, you know?
8: Yeah. It's hard to be incarcerated and tell someone that you love them mm. and have them genuinely believe it. I do feel limited because of my incarceration. There are things that I genuinely can't give her. Mm-hmm. But what I can do is let her know that I'm working towards my freedom so I am
9: able to give her the world. It, it, it does take like there has to be something special about someone who is incarcerated and can still reach out into the world and find love. Mm. Like, love, like there are a lot of things that, that that just cannot get inside of a prison, right? But love seems to be one of those things that can get through any crevice, through get through any barbed wire, mm. any security fence. Salt rifle, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Love will truly find its way, man.
8: My fiance asked me a couple of weeks ago, how do you know I'm the one? Mm. And I really sat there and just thought about it. And I didn't have no profound answer but I it was like a feeling. Like I just, I just know. I just know. And she was not content with that answer. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
9: You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I'm, not, con- say, I'm, not, I'm content not content with, with that, man. Hell no. <laughs> yeah, I just know. So yeah, he stopped saying that 50 years ago.
8: <laughs> but it is it's like something that I can't put into words. Mm. Like when I look at you, I know that I want to spend the rest of my life with you. Mm. When you are ready to make a commitment. You just know.
10: During my 10 and a half years incarcerated, I've been more familiar with heartbreak than with love in here. Right. So to hear you're getting married, for me, it brings up all this joy for you. But when I reflect on myself and my experiences with relationships since I've been incarcerated, like I get kind of scared. Like, how do you deal with that? Like, don't do you even feel even a little bit afraid that she might eventually just say, I can't do this no more? That, oh, I don't want to be your wife anymore or I can't ride this bit with you anymore? Like, do these feelings come up for you? Because I know they came up for me and uh, and it was a root of a lot of my heartbreak. No, that's that's
8: a good question. I think for me, kind of like you, I just had relationships, breakups, heartbreaks. And there was a point where like I just gave up on love completely.
10: Mm.
8: I don't wanna do this. It's not for me. like what's the point of me? like even trying to nurture and cultivate a relationship in prison? I know that it's gonna I know that it's gonna fall
10: mm.
8: It's gonna fall apart. but with this relationship, i think I think I really just wanna say it's something that we built together over time, and it mm-hmm. hasn't always been peaches and cream mm-hmm. like we've had our moments where those thoughts came up like, I don't have the energy, I do not have the time to put into this relationship, mm. go through just the daily stresses of being in a relationship. However, being able to communicate my needs, especially in relationships, is hard for me to like open up and express how I feel and like be vulnerable with a woman. I feel like it's easier for me to do that with a man than with a woman, because I always feel like there's gonna be some type of judgment And I'm gonna be viewed as being weak.
10: Mm. Mm -hmm.
8: So when and I I never got that from her. Every time that I was vulnerable and told her my needs and communicated what I was going through, regardless of what it was, like she held that space for me. Vice versa, I was able to hold that space for her. I was I was able to recognize that I'm not perfect, she's not perfect. Can we agree? To step into this relationship and be fearless to grow together, regardless the outcome. And that's what we've been doing since day one, man. That's beautiful. And we've built like a strong foundation that I feel is unbreakable.
4: That was an excerpt from the Uncuffed podcast. It's a partnership between KALW and inmates at San Quentin and Solano prisons. You can hear the full episode wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team. Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash OLLI.
1: This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Jade Heineman. In Shakespeare's romantic comedy, As You Like It, Rosalind and Orlando meet at court, but don't truly fall in love until they're banished to the forest. La Jolla Playhouse offers a reimagined play where identities can be fully explored through a cast of trans, non-binary, and queer performers. KPBS arts reporter Beth Acamondo spoke with the play's dramaturge, Regina Victor, about giving the Bard's 423 year old play a
6: genderful makeover. Regina, you are a dramaturg on this. So explain what that role is for people.
11: Yes. So this is my favorite question. Um, but I always say a dramaturg comes in three categories, right? There's world building dramaturgy, where uh, you work on a new play and you're figuring out the rules and dynamics of the world. And then you have historical dramaturgy, which you might think of for Shakespeare, right, of what was happening with kings or politics or whatever might be helpful to the play that you're working on. And then cultural dramaturgy, which I think is culturally specific and very much about if I'm working on an August Wilson show, then I might be there for my black experience, working on in this show, um, my trans experience is a value.
6: And for this particular production, it seems like you're kind of hitting an intersection of two of those dramaturg areas, which is the historical and the cultural. So how does that play out for this?
11: What's been really fun about this room is that there's a lot of historical fact that is really key to As You Like It structurally that has been kind of hard to translate to in present day. What I mean by that is King James was ruling at the time and this play was written in 1599 and I think it ran in 1623. King James would die in 1625. So this forest versus the court motif that as you like it sets up is really the catholic forest of the resistors and the free spirits and the protestant court which is very rigid at the time. And so for us our production is The binary court and the free, genderful forest. And so, getting to translate some of those historical pieces to the current text, like we cut a joke about a vicar because it was one of the only things that grounded us in that historical context versus our new one. And also, talk
6: a little bit about how Shakespeare's plays were produced and how that may have influenced this play in the sense that there were young boys playing the female role. So, there was already this kind of gender bending going on in the production. So how does that or does it come into play in any way in terms of kind of this reimagining?
11: Yeah, so I'm thinking about how Shakespeare's original productions, which would have been all men, affected this production, which is gender full. I think what Shakespeare's original productions had to do, that this one also has to do, is get down to the essence of the person. It's so lovely, Peter, uh, who's playing Rosalind, talks a lot about in the forest, I become a lover. And that identity transcends gender. And so when you get down to the core of who these people are and the story that they're actually trying to tell, you need that to do Shakespeare well anyway. So I think this is a more human production, a more humanist production.
6: Well, and Rosalind's an interesting character too, because there's multiple layers of of gender swapping because she's a woman who dresses as a man who then pretends to be a woman. And so just talk a little bit about the text itself and kind of what kind of things did you find interesting in it that kind of really played into the ideas
11: you were working with? Something very juicy to talk about is the epilogue because the epilogue is Famously, Shakespeare always has these epilogues that are almost apologies. And Rosalind's is very similar. It's like if we've offended men, if we've offended women, we're so sorry. And we went back and forth a lot about, should we take out the language about if I were a woman and if, and if I were this and if I were that. And we ended up only making one small change because what ended up being more delightful was giving this trans performer the ability to put that gender panic back on the audience. And to say, like, it's not actually for me to make sense of this for you. It is actually for me to invite you to make sense of it yourself. And I think that's kind of threaded through the entire piece, where there are moments where the gender play with Rosalind is really an invitation to other people that, like, just because you present one way, doesn't mean your gender has stopped. It doesn't mean you've arrived at, it means that you are now fluid between. And that's been really exciting.
6: it is about Shakespeare that makes his work so relatable even 400 years later or even that a company would want to take this play and try to reimagine it? What is it? do you think about his work that makes it sort of adaptable?
11: I think we get hung up a lot with Shakespeare on the words themselves and we worry that it's not accessible because it's poetry. But I find that once you get inside it you break it down it's some of the most relatable topics that you could ever think about. So falling in love for the first time ever, learning to express yourself through words for the first time, rather than anger, right? Norlander's experience. These are all people who are striving to just get to that next step of human evolution. And it really is an man's story in that way. I think most of Shakespeare's plays and the way they do with class and race and money and just, in love and the things that we traffic in every day, never gets old.
6: And is there anything in particular about As You Like It that you find appealing or that you connect with?
11: I think As You Like It is the silliest play. <laughs> it is the most fun to me. It is the most reckless in a lot of ways. I think, I would argue As You Like It, is the most politically reckless because Rosalind is kind of set up as Queen Elizabeth (laughs) versus Duke Frederick's court and this King James energy. And I find that so juicy and exciting and and on the edge of a lot of things that we're playing with now uh, with theater and political comedy. So it's really fun in that way.
6: So what would you tell people coming to the play in terms of the kind of expectations they should have in the way that this play may be reimagining Shakespeare's text?
11: Normally when you see a play of Shakespeare's it's dressed in a lot of concept and I think that this play because it is so uh, genderful and therefore so humanist and so specific you might hear this play for the first time (laughs) and I really mean that. I think we allow the story of the bodies and the images and the music and all the things we dress Shakespeare with to tell the story. I think in this one you'll get to really delight in the words, in the text, in the romance between them. It's so delicious. Um, all the things that they're finding and also the music. Shakespeare is populist theater. And so what T. Carly, our composer, is doing is taking all the Nani songs out and replacing them with modern contemporary pop songs because that's what they were at the time. So we have this beautiful motif too of like, what do these songs mean to the general population, to the queer community? And it really grounds the show in a new way.
6: And you'll be understudying a couple of the roles. Talk about Orlando's character and what you find kind of interesting or challenging
11: about it. Orlando is a beautiful character in that he gets this really great strongman journey that really mimics Hercules and he goes through all of these labors of love and he fights a lion in the forest and he reconciles with his brother. There's all these beautiful things that happen to him and at the end of the play he's really this lover and this poet and I think... Especially when we're talking about black masculinity, it's a beautiful thing to get to show in my body, in Inesco's body, what that journey can look like from having to put on this countenance that is so strong and, and tough, and then moving into a softer place that is still the person you started as in many ways. All right. Well, I want to thank you very much for talking about As You Like It. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm excited for you to come.
1: That was Beth Accomando speaking with Regina Victor. La Jolla Playhouse's As You Like It begins preview performances tomorrow and then runs through December 11th at the Potica Theatre. As we head into the season of joy, a recent children's book tries to capture the spiritual quest for joy and contentment. His Holiness the Dalai Lama and the late Archbishop Desmond Tutu, two of the most significant spiritual leaders of the last century, shared their wisdom in the Little Book of Joy. The story centers on the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu's lifelong quests to find and share joy. The book also features illustrations by San Diego artist and muralist, Rafael Lopez. Lopez spoke about the collaboration with KPBS arts producer and editor,
12: Julia Dixon Evans, and here's their conversation. So The Little Book of Joy began as a book for adults published in 2016, and it was based on a visit between the Dalai Lama and Archbishop Desmond Tutu. Can you tell us what happened in that visit?
13: Yes, I, I believe that, um, you know, the, the co-writers of the, the new book, uh, Douglas Abrams, is, is very close to uh, uh, the late Arvish Desmond Tutu, and Rachel Newman is very close to uh, his holiness the Dalai Lama. So at one point, I think uh, uh, Douglas Abrams traveled to South Africa and um, met with uh, the archbishop, uh, and he said, have you ever considered getting together with the Dalai Lama and have a sit-down conversation? Because you two have so much in common. And uh, he jumped at the uh, opportunity. He said, of course, you know, (laughs) I'm there. So eventually they worked all the logistics out and they they got together and it was pure magic. I was privy to some of the earlier uh, uh, takes of the video because they sent it to me to get a little bit of a feeling of their relationship. And the bantering between the two of them, the sense of humor that they both have and the conversation, it was just so refreshing to see these two people that are so human, and we perceive them as these amazing figures, champions of humanity, but they're sitting down and they sound like the the person that you want to be really close friends with. So it was it was magic in the making.
12: And the question at the heart of the Dalai Lama and Archbishop Tutu's conversations was, how do we find joy in the face of life's inevitable suffering? So how do children experience or internalize this?
13: Well, I mean, I, I think that, um, I mean, if you just open <laughs> your, your phone or you read the news, uh, we, we realize that we are surrounded with so many amazing, incredible and difficult challenges from, from war-torn regions, to refugees crisis, to famine, to climate change, it, it could become pretty overwhelming. And if, even in today's on every day's life with people that are not facing those horrible challenges, we do find things like uh, lack of understanding, solitude. Uh, uh, you know, the, all of us have faced that. And I believe that the message of uh, Archbishop Tutu and the Dalai Lama is that regardless of what you face, because let's think about it. I mean, these two uh, uh, people have faced incredible challenges in their own life, more than you and I could ever face, I think, you know. So the fact that they were able to find joy by looking very hard and looking around and seeing joy in in the more insignificant things that surround us, you can find tolerance, you can find forgiveness, you can find reconciliation, like in the case of South Africa. And if they could if they could do it, why not send that same message to kids that face maybe a different level of challenges in their life and remind them that that the human character is very resilient and that we can find joy even at the darkest of time and and, and joy has the power to to bring light into the darkest of times.
12: Can you tell me about some of the symbols that you used in in the art to represent joy?
13: Originally, the idea was to uh, portray happiness as rainbows, which I get it. And I think, yes, you know, rainbows is especially the the, the beautiful diversity or, and the diverse colors that we see after the storm, after, you know, everything is over and then the sun comes out and we see the rainbow. But I wanted, and we all agree too, that we needed to actually not find it so easy because joy sometimes is not easy to find. So we conceptualized the idea that rather than having from the very beginning this rainbow, which, by the way, if you look at the book, once you see the book, it's not going to look like a rainbow. It's more like ribbons of color, which uh, I was inspired by the, those, the beautiful ribbons and, and flags that you see in Tibet. But if you start the book in the beginning, you can't see the joy. You can't see the color. You need to find that it's there, but it's very hidden. It's whether it's either the color of this chimney here. Or it's a little bug over there with a little football made out of like rags of color, but it's very far away. And I wanted to create uh, teachable opportunities for teachers to, uh, of, of teachable moments where they can actually open the page and, and tell the kids, where, you, where is the joy? Can you find the joy here? Mm-hmm. I mean, and you know that our characters look sad and lonely but there's joy out there. So we thought it was an incredible opportunity to do that metaphorically. Joy could be hidden and slowly it starts to evolve as a rainbow of colors until it's, it becomes very, very evident. And it's, it's right there in your face.
12: So you have illustrated a lot of children's books and so many of your books center on encouraging and inspiring young change makers. What was it like starting with material from such highly esteemed leaders and change makers themselves?
13: Well, first of all, uh, it's pretty surreal, right? When you get the call and they said, uh, you know, they want you to be the illustrator for these two champions of, uh, peace, the world peace and, and, and world understanding. So, uh, I was I was pretty floored. <laughs> it took me a couple of days to realize uh, the significance of doing this, and incredibly honor. I, I I thought that I needed to do my best work to really represent their message as best as I could. And uh, I've always been attracted to stories of um, underdogs. I mean, being a, a an immigrant myself. Uh, my mother was uh, wanted to become an architect when she was in, in in the 1950s in Mexico, where no one, no woman, would ever dare to become an architect at the time. You know, they were all men. And uh, uh, you know, having a, a a a kid with special needs as well, I I like stories of people that can survive and and become stronger and overcome so many challenges. So those are the stories that I'm attracted to when I illustrate books. And this is definitely. <laughs> On the very top, I mean, because if you are aware and familiar with their stories of both both of their journeys uh, since childhood, it's just amazing what they have been able to accomplish, not just for them, but for the rest of us in, in, a, in a very moral way, too. You know, they are incredible messages about this hopeful message of peace, tolerance, reconciliation, compassion and kindness. So yeah, everything just fell into the right place. Uh, And and the the challenge was a little scary, but uh, I thought I could do it with a little bit of time and lots of uh, meditation and relaxation though.
12: Rafael, thank you so much.
13: Thank you, Julia. It was a pleasure talking to you.
1: That was KPBS arts producer and editor, Julia Dixon Evans, speaking with Rafael Lopez, the San Diego-based illustrator of a new children's book, The Little Book of Joy by the Dalai Lama and Archbishop Desmond
4: Tutu.